This is Global Storyline with your host, Dean W. Arnold, where we examine events current and past and place them in the Global Storyline. Our guest tonight is Jay Dyer. He's the creator of the website jaysanalysis.com. He's a frequent contributor to the uh, journal souloftheeast.org, and he's also a frequent guest on uh, some of the top alternative programs and podcasts nationally and worldwide. He's best known for his uh, esoteric Hollywood film reviews and also uh, by, uh, has a book coming out uh, soon by the same name. However, his favorite material is theology and philosophy, about which he has written extensively and uh, podcasted on extensively, uh, and other issues that he deals with uh, to a great deal is uh, geopolitics, espionage, current events, and corruption theory, uh, technology, and scientism. Couple that with a background in stand-up comedy and a willingness to do impersonations once in a while, all that makes me consider Jay to be perhaps the most interesting and comprehensive thinker out there today. So it is a privilege to interview you on Global Storyline. Hi, Jay. Hello, Dean. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, that's really high praise, so I better, be, I better be on my toes for this one. Yeah, well, you know, uh, just uh, smoke, a, <laughs> smoke a good cigarette, drink a cup of coffee, do, yeah. get your whole arsenal together, and... Uh, and uh, We'll, 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 we'll ruin uh, many of the Christian stereotypes right away with the cigarette. That'll just get rid of all the people we want to get rid of right, for, right from the get-go. The evangelicals are already turning off their... Yes, they're, they're, there <laughs> they go, even as we see. Clicking speak. the Xbox. <laughs> okay, um, lots of things to talk about. Uh, that introduction, you're so eclectic, I could have introduced you a number of ways, so uh, I enjoyed doing that. But um, first thing I wanted to say is, of course, today is a big day. It's a big annual celebration, of course. And so I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that at the very beginning of the podcast, because, of course, this is the annual celebration of being right in between the Feast of the Nativity of the Theotokos and the Feast of the Elevation of the Cross. And uh, I just wanted to get that in because uh, that's my little bailiwick, is that I like to... Uh, uh, organize my life based on the church calendar and not on strange uh, and weird uh, shootings that happen or other yeah, I, other I types like of that. tragic events. I like that piece you did. I agree. So uh, let's just get that out there first. Uh, I think there's something else going on today. I, I can't remember what that is, but you, you might be able to remind me of it. 9-11? Oh, that's what it is. Okay, yeah. Um, 15th or something anniversary of 9-11 today. Okay, um... Uh, <clears throat> want to encourage everybody out there who is a little bit familiar with Jay's stuff or not familiar at all. You need to go to jaysanalysis.com. You need to uh, subscribe. Uh, $4.95 a month, is that what it is? Or $60 a year. And there's also the Patreon option if uh, people want to give a different amount, it is possible. Right. So um, uh, $4.95, I've been a, I've been a subscriber for, for about a year, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the price point. Uh, I think some, a lot of people, you, you, the subscriptions are like 10 bucks a month and that sort of stuff. $4.95 is like nothing. I mean, it's like perfect. Um, and everybody ought to do that. You ought to do it just because you're going to get a ton of great information, but you also ought to do it even if you just want to just support people who are out there 
giving it a go to get the truth out there uh, in, in the midst of a crazy world. So uh, yeah. I encourage everybody to do that. Go ahead. Well, I heard your interview with Tim, and uh, you, you guys both made that point. And, uh, that was uh, appreciated, those plugs there. And uh, I really do you know, hope to give a, a, a solid education that you're not going to get, you know, in a university setting. So, you know, to couple that with theology and the kind of analysis that I do, I think I agree with you. It is a good deal. And, um, you know, it's grown tremendously over the last year since I've been doing it full time. So um, not 90, 95% approval on the part of the audience. And it's really growing up to be a large archive. You know, there's a lot of different stuff there. And the next year is just going to continue to grow. Yeah, and you know, uh, I think you and I might have talked about this when we were uh, hanging out in person. Um, but uh, you know, in a per- perfect world, uh, probably you ought to be in academia. But academia is has has just is is so disappointed uh, us. It's been a disappointing effort, I think. Um, yeah. And I got to thinking about it the other day. I'm not I'm not a real Latin scholar or anything, so I might butcher this. Yeah. But but doesn't university mean one truth? Um, so, you know, that's, that's where the university, of course, I guess universities came out of, uh, middle ages where theology was the queen of the sciences and that sort of thing. And, and so, uh, and so all things were sort of unified in Christ in good theology. And, uh, you know, we just don't have that anymore. And I can't find it really anywhere. And you're one of the few places where I see, all the areas of reality kind of being dealt with, with the one truth being Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you ought to be in the university, but the university is no longer a university. It's a, uh, what, what would you call it? A, a mini-versity, a confused diversity, a uh, pagan-versity. Uh, it's you a know, diver- diversity. A diversity, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's a lot of yeah, things. It's like all it. about diversity, supposedly. But, oh, oh, I got you. Diversity, sure. Yeah, sure. right. And uh, as Cardinal Newman, you know, wrote that famous book, you know, what around a hundred years ago, that that the university is supposed to represent the, as you pointed out, unification of the sciences under the queen of the sciences, theology, and that's been the tradition for both East and West, especially you know in Byzantium. Uh, theology plays such a central role. So that's the way it should be. Um, since the Enlightenment and these different movements, we've seen a, a radical shift in Western education. There's books that even treat that from the academic establishment. There's a famous book by Louis Dupre. Um, I've got it over here. It's called Passage to Modernity, and he charts the history of uh, of education and and the trek of ideology in the West. From a, He's a Yale scholar, Yale culture scholar. Uh, and he points out all the things that we're talking about. So it's not a conspiracy theory. It's uh, it's just the, the way that things unfortunately happen in the West. And uh, so, yeah, a- academia, unless you're in a certain section or if you're in private schools or something like that, is not really amenable to, to this kind of discourse and this kind of thinking. Because, as you pointed out, it was all about breaking down into disparate, unrelated fields. And so if you do biology... You're not supposed to have any connection to the arts. If you do the arts, it's your own subjective experiment or uh, existential experience, and that's supposed to have nothing to do with philosophy. But historically, these would all be, you know, uh, placed under classical education, and they would be under God. 
So absolutely. I got a good buddy in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, which is uh, 20 minutes from Blacksburg, which is where Virginia Tech is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were having this conversation a little bit. I was bemoaning the fact that there is no university anymore, no more one truth. There's nothing that brings everyone together (coughs) philosophically at the university. And he said, well, he says, I don't think you're quite familiar with the concept called college football. Um, (laughs) So uh, I guess there is a one truth, but it's just a little bit... If you're from Tennessee, I'm sure you're familiar with it because people worship UT. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah, it, it's uh, so it was a pretty funny joke, but it was a little, <laughs> it was a little bit sick joke because there's so much yeah. truth to it. Right. Um, I was going to point out one other thing, and that I, th- you know, I went to a, a pretty good Christian college, I think, and there are some good Christian colleges out there, but I, <clears throat> I really can't put them in the category of doing the one truth thing in the sense that. <clears throat> They sort of follow the nod of the peer pressure of academia, don't want to get too far out on the edge, you know, with government corruption, conspiracy theory, other issues like that, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, they're, they're, you know the tax fundies tax issue, is, that's certainly one of the issues. And I think if, even if it wasn't for that, uh, I think just the, the culture there on, on a campus now just doesn't seem to lend itself to taking risks like that. So... Uh, there are some good co- Christian colleges that put Christ at the center, but I, I just it, it, they're not quite doing it for me in terms of bringing it all together. Yeah, I attended a Baptist Bible college for a while, uh, and there were aspects of it that were enjoyable, but that was at a time when I was about 20, 21, when my theological views were changing quite a bit, and you know, I was looking into Catholic ideas, looking into ideas like infant baptism and these kinds of things, moving out of Baptist thinking, and uh, it, it once you you know have a theological shift like that, it, it's just not really amenable to. Uh, it doesn't work to keep attending a Baptist college mainly because they want you to attend Southern Baptist at where I went uh, school, or excuse me, you're supposed to attend a Southern Baptist church, and I didn't want to, uh, but they were which I guess it's sensible from their perspective. If we're training you to, you know, learn the Bible, we would like you to, to be a Baptist preacher. Right. So, yeah, I mean, unless you choose a denominational school like that, um, you're not really going to get the theological education, which would have been traditionally what you'd have even in regular education would have been part of your liberal arts. But, um, but yeah, it's just we live in a different world, and it's more of a catacomb situation almost. Right. I, I went. I to guess a, you could argue. I, I went to a Christian um, college. I went to a Christian college that I think had uh, a, a little better uh, uh, approach than what you're talking about. Uh, it's Covenant College mm-hmm. on top of Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's the it's the uh, college of the Presbyterian Church of America, which is a strong conservative Bible believing denomination, and I thought they did a pretty PCA, good. Yeah. yeah, I thought they did a pretty good job of exploring theology and being open to different ideas and being intellectually honest. I just, uh, I just think that in those campus settings, because you're, you know, you've got to raise so much money and you've got to be beholden to major donors and that kind of thing. You're just, you're not in a place where the professors uh, can really push the envelope uh, and really question 
uh, how corrupt things mm-hmm. are in our society. So I want to get that out. I want to. I'm going to move on to kind of talking about your background. You just started to to nibble on it a little bit, but first mm-hmm. I, I've got a I got a list of your 15 past podcasts that I'm going to read because we we are going to have some listeners who just aren't familiar with you and here you and I are having all this general conversation about you and what you do what you do. But let's let's get okay. to it specifically. So here here's uh, your last 15 podcasts. Number one. Uh, hybrid wars and faux revolutions, which is a geopolitics. Next one, classical nihilism and the world order. That's a philosophical thing. Uh, next one, Hollywood voodoo, which is obviously film and esoterica and the occult. Uh, the metaphysics of postmodern imperialism, uh, some kind of philosophy. Next one, underground bases for the elites. I don't know what you call that, UFO research. Um, the next one is Genesis and Creation Mysteries. That's really a theological piece. The next one is B-movies. The next one is, was the hippie movement a CIA op? I don't think so. that's what, that's not what you titled it, but uh, I'm trying to cut to the chase. The next one is the cult of reason and alchemical scientism. So some version of science and philosophy. Next one is examining Plato's Republic, uh, philosophy and uh, geopolitics. Next one is Hollywood mind control. Uh, next one is orthodox theology, Thomism, and Gregory Palamas. Theology. Uh, two more. Hitchcock's Psycho Psyche. And the last one, uh, well, I, this, is, this is my generalization. Many interviews on possible fake shootings and other tragedies. Uh, so now you guys who are listening have an idea of what I'm talking about when I say Jay is dealing with just about everything. <laughs> um, yeah, and, one, one caveat I would add is that uh, I don't do or believe in aliens, so that that's not a UFO thing. But we do talk about the, we try to get to the bottom of the uh, question of underground bases in that one that you mentioned. No, I, no, I appreciate you clarifying that. I, you know, a UFO means un, unidentified flying object, right. and uh, uh, and that that's the way I was sort of looking at it. But you're right, uh uh, people might think that's aliens, and well, I just don't like to give the impression that I that I believe it. Yeah, you right. believe you believe in aliens if they're demons. Yeah, the principalities and powers that Paul talks about, but right, but they not mean, the extra biological entities of ET or anything like that. No, I get that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, uh, let's get into the bio first, and uh, uh, and particularly. Uh, the religious bio. That's what I'm most interested in, and just as a setup. You already mentioned you're raised Baptist. I forget what you did next, but I think it was Calvinism and the Reform thing, and then and then you became Catholic, and now you're Eastern Orthodox. So I want to hear about all those. Uh, I, I particularly want to talk Calvinism with you because that is uh, that's my background, and there's probably mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, I don't know of anybody else in all the podcasts that I've listened to who've asked you a lot of questions about that. So we'll we'll spend a little time on that. But so start with where you were. You were Baptist, and then what happened? Um. Well, I, I was invited to a, a lot of Bible studies back in, in that time period. It was around 18, 19. Um, I dove into reading the Bible pretty extensively and regularly, and that inevitably brings up a lot of theological questions. You know, you want to try to deal with these issues of, well, the book of Acts talks about people supposedly doing miracles, and does that mean the charismatics are right, or... Or these more high churches uh, with their you know Anglican style liturgies—is that more correct, or is it something that we should just be doing in a strip mall? Or you're inevitably confronted with these kinds of questions when you begin reading the Bible, and you know you've got friends that go to all these different churches, and they're inviting you to different churches, and so I, I kind of tested them all out, and 
the more that I read, uh, that late led to you know interest in other topics like hit church history. And so while on the surface, the way that you read it, it might sound like uh, somebody listless sort of bouncing about, but I see it more as of a, a logical and historical progression that, uh, you know, and a lot of other people have had the same experience where they went through either similar churches or similar periods of uh, theological awakening, you might say, you know, stages or phases of the same sort of trail, you know, that you're going down. And I don't think that I... It wasn't just me picking what I wanted. It was me, you know, sincerely wanting to deal with really sometimes tough questions. You know, when you're if you're going to a Baptist Bible college and you're confronted with, you know, I I read Augustine's City of God, of God at that time. I was about 21, and I took a lot of those questions to two of my Baptist professors, and I didn't feel like they had sufficient answers to a lot of the questions and issues that Augustine raises such as, you know, what is the nature of grace? What is the nature of church government, the episcopacy? Uh, what is the nature of all manner of things, right? Relics, all these kinds of weird Catholic-ish type issues that uh, at that time I understood to be Catholic. And that was very difficult because I was really enmeshed, enmeshed in the uh, Reformation tradition by that point when I was uh, after about a year of Bible college. And I'd read through Calvin's uh, 1556 Institutes. That's his later, more fuller treatment. So I was really, really thoroughly on board with Calvinism. And I'd also been reading some of the Reconstructionists and people like Gary North and Greg Bonson and James Jordan and R.J. Rush Dooney. And I felt like that was pretty solid stuff. But <clears throat> none of these people, and I, I knew a lot of the people in the, you know, the Reconstructionist circles and a lot of those uh, Reformed Presbyterian circles, they that I when I would reach out to different ministers or presbyters or whatever elders, I didn't feel like I was ever getting sufficient answers to questions that were very similar to the ones that I posed to my Baptist preachers. So I saw a lot of common ground there, a lot of similarity between a lot of being unfamiliar, you know, with the first fifteen hundred years of the church. Now, stop, stop there for a second. You say a couple of common questions you had problems mm -hmm. with the Baptists and the Presbyterians. Can you tell yeah. us what those questions gonna, are? Yeah, I'm going to get to that. Okay, um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, you, you know, what I found was that if it came to, uh, you know, even Lutheran friends I had or uh, Calvinist minister friends that I had and, and elders and buddies, anything past 1500, you're, you're good. You can get, you know, times and dates and seasons and every little bit of information you wanted. Right. But when it came to things prior to that, there was almost no knowledge. And I had a period where I decided to um, not continue Baptist Bible College. And at that time, there was such a thing as Bonson Seminary, which was Greg Bonson's kind of personal thing. Now, he had already passed away, but it's it still existed, and you could still do it through kind of correspondence. So I did that for a year, and they had a really intensive church history class, amazingly. I met a guy who was a pretty sharp guy named Chris Strebel. I believe he's still a Presbyterian minister somewhere, but he taught this class, and we read about 10 books on uh, ancient and medieval church, and some of that was the church fathers. Others, Other books were just kind of general treatments of the medieval era of the church, and that raised more questions for me. So basically what it came down to was around that time period, around age 22 or 23, I went ahead and invested in the church fathers set that you see here in the background, awesome. and... And uh, I just started diving in. Now, at that time, I, as I said, I, I read Augustine's 
City of God when I was 21, but I'd not read any of these other Western church fathers. So the more that I read, and that's really where I stayed focused was Western fathers. Um, I just, I kept finding references to things like the Eucharist and the saints and the relics and uh, confession or liturgy or these kinds of big button issues, you know, that, that are supposed to be idolatrous and supposed to be heresy, supposed to be all these, all these damnable things according to, you know, pretty hardcore puritanical Calvinism. And I was a big fan of the Westminster Confession. So I wrote a lot of these questions down and I would kind of take shop them around to different people I knew. Another big issue that came to me was the question of how the Bible as a as a canon, as it's called, the, the canon of books that are in the Bible. Yes. How that how that formation process happened. And so what I did was I didn't go to, to Roman Catholic apologists or Orthodox apologists. I went to a bunch of evangelical apologists. So I read F. F. Bruce I read some other uh, some Protestant thinkers who tried to make sense of this. Even Protestant apologists, like uh, there's a, a guy uh, Webster or somebody like that who who wrote against this on, from the Catholic and Orthodox side. And uh, I've just found so many references in the Protestants and the Evangelicals um, that I I couldn't make sense of how we were supposed to believe on the one hand of this long period of apostasy in the church, but that at the same time they were the ones who made the decision that what the biblical books would be. Uh, it just made, it just ended up so many, so many ludicrous contradictions that, um, I didn't feel like I was getting good answers. And I, and at that point I didn't feel any moral opprobrium for beginning to read or talk to people from Catholic or Orthodox churches. And at that time I was in a very hardcore Presbyterian, um, puritanical type church uh, we were even more strict than than the PCA that you're talking about. Uh, so I know the type. I know the type. The TR, truly reformed. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. And uh, so I, I went outside of the the bounds of what you're supposed to do, and I, I met with some Catholic priests, and I took questions to them. I didn't know anybody, anybody Orthodox at that time, although I did get a hold of a couple Orthodox books, like Timothy Ware's book. But I was still very just obsessed with Western Catholicism because— that was really only all I knew. I never visited an Orthodox church or anything like that. And so I, I continued to read, uh, you know, Jerome and Ambrose and Augustine even further. And when I read Augustine against the Donatists and Augustine against the Pelagians and probably a couple thousand pages worth of his works beyond the city of God at a certain point, I was just, and he's a big hero, oddly enough to the reformed. Uh, it just made no sense. It was like this, why, this guy, he's either a hero or he's not. You know, I mean, if everything in the because West, he talked about predestination a lot. I know, right? Yeah, but there's all these other things, right? Oh yeah, right. So uh, that just uh, eventually just fizzled out, and I just I I, I think I had a period of about eight months where I went to a PCA church because I couldn't deal with the um, TR, the truly reform that I was formerly going to. Can you tell me and, what part of the country you're in, or does that reveal too much? No, I don't care. I was uh, attending, at that time, it was a church in Jackson, Tennessee, uh, and I don't know if he's still the minister there. This was 15, oh, oh, what, okay. 12 years, 10, year, 10 years ago. Uh, his name is Grover Gunn. Memphis area, for those of you who don't know, yeah. Yeah, um, and Grover was a really great guy. He had actually studied directly under Greg Bonson and knew him personally, and we had a, a good relationship, uh, you know, very friendly, but I also didn't feel, and that actually kind of made it a little bit more difficult because I felt like he was sincerely at least trying to deal with a lot of the issues and questions I was bringing. And I had a time period where I read some Anglican books and 
thought, well, maybe the Anglicans kind of have the middle road or whatever. But I finally just decided, no, there's just too much evidence uh, in the West for the office of the papacy and the real presence in the Eucharist and these kinds of issues that I set aside all the other Catholic issues that I wasn't sure about. I was already kind of wondering about the liberalism and Catholicism, but I just said, well, that'll all settle itself out because I know what the church fathers say, and I know that these are the people who decided what books were in the Bible, so they're probably right on these other things. Right, right. So uh, I started attending uh, a mass uh, locally around here. I uh, did that for a couple years, or maybe about a year, and then I decided I would you know, go through the catechumen classes for Roman Catholicism and join the church. Um, went through uh, conditional baptism and uh, chrismation. Did you have did you, any um, person in your Presbyterian, Reformed, Calvinist circles ever sit down and talk with you or confront you or that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us uh, about that. How'd many that of them. Go? How'd that go? Well, the original hardcore TR church uh, got very, very nasty and very threatening and forbade me to read any of these books. And uh, I felt like that was a direct violation of the principles of even the Westminster Confession when it comes to, you know, issues of conscience. <laughs> so uh, that ended up in kind of just a clean break with that group. Um, it wasn't, it was two or three elders uh, over time. That uh, I got letters from some elders. Elders, I got even back then. I got a call for interviews, um, but I wasn't doing anything public. This was just kind of my my private conversion. But I've been very active in helping to build that church at that time, and I brought a lot of my college friends, you know, into this this mission church is what it started out as, and uh, so it was kind of a big deal to a lot of people in that relatively small group because I. You know, we we had been so anti-Catholic for so long that for me to have such a radical change like that, they felt was pretty devastating. I guess to some people, um, and the the minister himself, of course, was the most uh, adamant um, in his lockdown. You know, like if you do this, we will bring uh, church government excommunicate. We'll excommunicate you, basically the the reformed version of excommunication. So. I just decided to leave the church, and I said, well, I'd rather transfer to another presbytery, uh, which is what I did. So I ended up driving uh, for about a year to to another church. So, you know, it just it amounted to a series of events and a series of interactions and meetings, and then you start, you enter in, you step into a whole other world, you know, the Roman Catholic world, which is very different from the the Reformed version of things, and... Um, Let me stop you there. Uh, I I want to explore just a a couple things. You know, for me, the issue of Sola Scriptura, the issue of where the canon came from, really the issue of authority was was the entire issue. Now, you also bring up things like, you know, the real presence in the Eucharist and liturgical worship and those kind of things. I guess those were just sort of other things maybe that also brought to light the issue, but it really, it really comes down to this authority issue, right? I mean, you know, where, uh, uh, Protestants and, and the Reformed people, they, they point to Scripture. It's all about sola scriptura. Everything comes from the Scripture. But if you can't come up with a good solid case as to who decides what's in Scripture and what is Scripture and which books go into it, then that whole thing kind of crumbles. So, uh, uh, for me, that was the, that was the whole thing. Yeah. 
at this stage in my life, and when it was the issue in my mind of Catholic versus Protestant, that was the issue ultimately. Yeah. Now, later down the road, it will become a more complex issue between Rome and Orthodoxy when it comes to the person of Christ and to the theology of God. That's what would be the deciding, not so much the issues of the papacy, although that might play into it with what we see at Vatican II and after Vatican II in the Roman Catholic world, which for me was a great testament to Orthodoxy. But uh, Why don't you go move into that? Just tell us how you move from uh, more details on from Catholicism to Orthodoxy. The person well, of Christ, I, I mean, now what does that mean? Well, I want to add, too, though, that I had about an eight- or ten-year period of, of Roman Catholicism, so I, it wasn't uh, you know fly-by-night thing. It was something that I, I took very seriously. I even considered monastic life for a while. Um, I thought about the Dominicans and so forth. And It's not too late. Uh, well, not with the Dominicans. I, no, I don't, I'm, I'm I, talking about being a monastic. I know what you mean, but uh, I think they— uh, <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. I don't— th- <laughs> I, 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 The Dominicans seem to be— pretty heavy on the homosexual side in Roman Catholicism, so I was not interested in that, oh, okay, yeah. that experience. And I actually met with the diocesan, um, the guy who, you know, vets people for that, and uh, he seemed basically gay himself, and that was a big turnoff for me. So I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, so, but I, what I, the reason I mention all that is that there's an important phase where I got really into Catholicism and I dove into all of the classic Catholic sources. So Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages and then the Council of Trent. The Trent uh, Trent produced its own catechism, which was very famous and, and used most often for traditional Catholics before the, I think in the 80s, the church put out the new catechism. So prior to that, it was the Catechism of Trent, which was, which was crucial. Um, the Boston Catechism was another famous one, and you had a lot of, of papal documents that were considered normative for Western Roman Catholicism across the board until the time of Vatican II. And I dove really, really intensely into Vatican II. I read all the documents I met with and talked to various Catholic theologians across the spectrum um, because it was it's a very difficult issue, and it's still playing out now in the, in the world of uh, Roman Catholicism because it it's such a radical departure from you know the tridentine catholicism and prior to that even so that for me was a big issue because you know i i went into catholicism and into the church fathers thinking i want that faith i want to believe what everybody's believed in the true faith and then what we find in roman catholicism and then it's the fruits of roman uh, of vatican II, which is all of this just really insane liberalism that at times goes beyond Anglicanism. It, it's, it's staggering. There's nothing like it in, in, that I can ever think of in history. Um, and it really is that bad. Uh, I saw a lot of it firsthand in, um, you know, I, I mean, not any of the pedophilia stuff, but I, I did research that quite a bit, read several books on it. And I knew a lot of priests and I knew people who had, had dealt with that scandal and issue in the church, not priests that were pedophile priests, but I'm saying that, that dealt with the, the aftermath. And so I'm not just saying that the moral issues are, of course, I believe, uh, an outworking of the theological problems. And the theological problems are manifested evidently at Vatican II. And so we have this departure from even teachings of the Pope's 20 or 30 years before that. I mean, you have these documents like Mortalium Animos, which is a famous papal encyclical of Pius XI, uh, where he says that large ecumenical prayer gatherings 
that intend to uh, relativize the church, he says it's all, that's apostasy. And then by the time of uh, John the Twenty Third and Vatican II and Paul the Sixth, that now becomes the Holy Spirit. So what was apostasy thirty, forty years earlier becomes the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is a big issue now in Roman Catholicism. And you have this giant group uh, of, called the Society of St. Pius X and other traditional groups that represent a kind of schism of probably a million people within uh, the so-called Roman Catholic Communion uh, who basically haven't followed anything since Vatican II. And now that's different from the rest of the world that follows uh, Benedict and uh, Bergoglio. But those um, those fissures, those those theological divisions, were a big problem for me that I dealt with that for, for many years. Because in Catholicism, you're not you can't you're not supposed to commune and, and go through that kind of stuff if if the if the the bishops and the theologians are outwardly preaching heresy. And canon law in, Rome, in the Roman Catholic communion is called an ipso facto excommunication. So, for example, if a, if, a, if a Catholic has an abortion, they're automatically excommunicated. But the problem is that in canon law, the same thing applies for bishops that preach heresy openly, and many of them do, and nobody does anything about it. So, the question then is, you know, well, where do you go to Mass? Well, you go to Mass where you know that it's a Latin Mass, and you know that it's going to be solid and orthodox, and so that requires driving two hours and so forth. So I did that for a long time, and then finally it was just like, something's off here. Like, this is not... This is not matching up to the church fathers. It's not matching up to, you know, what I thought I was getting into. And so I began to consider, well, maybe there's other options. You know, I don't really know a lot about orthodoxy. And this is around 2006 or seven. Uh, so I started reading the Eastern church fathers and I, I met some orthodox guys who were pretty solid. Um, still friends to this day with some of those guys. And it was just kind of another opening up another world. And in the Orthodox world, and I didn't, I, I, I hesitated for a long time. You know, I was, I was very uh, iffy because I, I, there was a lot about Catholicism that I appreciated and that I liked. Uh, even back, you know, when I was a Calvinist, there were aspects of Calvinism that I appreciated. Um, you know, all the emphasis on the Bible. And, but I felt like it just wasn't, there was something missing. And so in the same way with, with Catholicism, I felt like there was something missing. And um, I just dove into the Eastern Church Fathers, and I visited some uh, Eastern Divine Liturgies, and uh, I was just very impressed with what I felt was, I thought that 2006, 2007, you know, much more faithful to the Church Fathers and to the biblical witness than what I experienced in the various flavors of Roman Catholicism. So the issue of the papacy is part of this matter because the papacy is a focal point of Vatican II, because Vatican II argues for collegiality, that the Bishop of Rome should not really exercise this monarchical uh, supreme pontifex uh, role that he's been functioning in in the last thousand years of Western Christianity. He needs to tone it down, basically. And uh, that goes directly against Vatican I. So, in other words, ironically, uh, the Protestant an Anglican influence at Vatican II argued for a more collegial view, something more Eastern. So I'm, so I'm sitting here thinking, well, if I'm Roman Catholic and we're sitting here arguing for a collegial view of the bishops and the patriarchs, uh, look, how is this, how is orthodoxy wrong anymore? So that kind of opened up the, you know, 
possibilities for me to look into Orthodox theology. And, and I did that. And that was a, a, a long process as well, you know, not just intellectual. I mean, I obviously took it serious in the sense of, um, you know, beginning to get Eastern prayer books and icons and the, the normal modes of, of Orthodox worship that are very different from how you approach things in Catholicism. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I mentioned earlier the person of Christ and the theology, and that ultimately was the the clincher for me because that's the aspect that sets Orthodox theology off most clearly from Catholicism, even though most a lot of Orthodox people wouldn't necessarily say that, first off. They, a lot of Orthodox people might think, well, we believe in a lot of the same Trinity Jesus stuff, but it's that Pope thing. But it's not. It's uh, the Pope— or Vatican II, these are manifestations of more fundamental theological differences, even if people may not be aware of it, because when you go back and you read the Eastern Councils and the Eastern Fathers, you'll see a different theology explicated. And so that's why, uh, you know, I would still say that I find orthodoxy to be way more convincing, and I've not experienced anything uh, that would that would lead me to, th to think otherwise. I, in other words, I don't ever see myself going back to Roman Catholicism or Protestantism. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, I got a lot of questions for you. Um, but, uh, uh, that was going to be one of my questions. Uh, what is it about being Orthodox now? Uh, uh, who's to say, well, in three or four years, Jay's going to go on his next Jag. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I suppose for any of us, because of, you know, free will, the, the possibility of, being in error or being convinced of something else is a potentiality for anybody. I mean, who can say where they'll be tomorrow? You know, we don't know that. So I, I can't say with uh, divine certitude, you know, that I won't uh, make a mistake or, or be convinced of something. But I, the reason that, as I said before, I think if you, if you understand the theology, you see it as a progression. You see it as a certain things leading to other things. And what I see with, with Orthodox theology as explicated by certain Orthodox theologians and apologists, I think that you can see how, whether it's Judaism or Islam or Christianity, there's only a certain number of options that you can choose for monotheism that will take you down a certain path, right? So certain arguments is what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that certain arguments can cancel out those positions and show the correct position, I would say. Now, that might be a little too complex for our talk, but um, so, for example, the teaching on the difference between the essence and energy of God in Eastern theology, this is not in Roman Catholicism. In fact, it's not possible to have it in, in Roman Catholicism because of the dogmatic definitions of previous Roman Catholic councils, and particularly at Trent, that define things like created love and created justice and the fact that all of God's attributes are strictly to be identified with his essence. That's stated numerous times in Denzinger, which is the central source of Catholic dogma officially. It's a famous book put together of all the dogmatic statements. Yeah, I'll stop you there because that is uh, that we are getting uh, into some obtuse stuff, which would be fun for a whole separate podcast. But, but uh, I, I would add on to that, for me personally, uh, why I have a, a settled sense that I'm not going to be running to another 
mm -hmm. um, Christian expression in the next few years is that when I uh, becoming Orthodox, you're actually joining a tra joining a tradition that has pretty much been the same since the beginning. Yeah, uh, and I've you know I, I've made jokes about my father who was a he was a great evangelical pastor, but he would always make fun of the people who would say we've always done it that way. And uh, because, you know, he was progressive, you know, he wanted to move on and that kind of thing. Well, when you become orthodox for the first time, people can say we've always done it this way and they're being legitimate and authentic because they actually have always done it that way. When you were a Protestant, it was like, well, at some point you weren't doing that way because you broke off from the Catholics, that kind of stuff, you know. So, right. um, but this is this is a a faith. This is a way of life. This is a following of Jesus Christ. That has been done the same way since the beginning, and and it's not going to change. This tradition doesn't allow you to change it. It's going to continue the same way as it always was. And you know, until I became Orthodox, I thought the only way you could kind of get into that kind of a mojo was be Catholic. I didn't want to be Catholic. Um, and when I found out that the Catholics actually broke away from the Mother Church, that all sort of the you know the light kind of came on. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that for me, that's the answer to that question. Now, I, I want to uh, also mention to you, I'm I'm sort of a uh, um, a parlor theologian, so don't don't take me too seriously. But but I have to deal with my friends and and, uh -huh. and do a lot of uh, defense of orthodoxy with you know a lot of Protestants. And one of the things I say is that if you had to just sum up the difference between the East and the West and Western Christianity in two words, in in you would say that the East focuses on persons mm -hmm. and the West focuses on propositions. Um, so rationalism and propositional kind of truth about God is sort of where everything is obsessed on in the West, whereas in the East, uh, it's about persons. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. It's about the Trinity. It's about having a real encounter, a real personal relationship with the the triune God, and then and then personages are are all through Eastern Christianity. There's icons like you mentioned. There's people all over the walls. There's uh, pe uh, lots of people being prayed for in the litanies. There's angels everywhere, and angels talked about. There's the departed. They get prayed for a lot and talked about a lot. You know, just everywhere you look, there's there's persons. Uh, and so that's that's one way that I describe it. That is a, a good. Um basic explanation and you're you're right in terms of how things play out i would add that that it is also the theology uh, of person uh, that is distinct in orthodoxy that makes it different from the west be that roman catholicism or protestantism and i believe that there is an actual revealed anthropology in the new testament and we can look in those actual those greek greek terms are important the way they're used in the new testament i'm not going to get too deep but um, so it's not just a matter of the fact that there's this more intimate relationship aspect. There is, but that more intimate relationship aspect is based on the fact that the Orthodox theology teaches a, a different perspective on man and man's nature and God and God's uh, the way God reveals himself and relates to us than the West does. And that's a different starting point. So that's what I was saying earlier about the differences between any of the same monotheistic faith is that the starting point is different. And that then out of that flows a lot of different, a lot of distinctions from Judaism, Islam, or other uh, manifestations of Christianity. 
Don't you and, think don't you think there might be a tie-in uh, in what we're talking about in terms of authority that that if that if 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 you're a Western Christian, your authority comes from this rationalistic uh, set of propositions, particularly Protestants. Well, whereas if you're Orthodox, you you accept the authority of a bunch of persons who who keep handing it down to you. Yeah, the living church, right, right. The church is always a living icon of God and of Christ. And I don't mean to, I'm not meaning to downplay that. I'm just saying that if I was, and I had a recent interaction with a Protestant Reformed buddy of mine, and we were talking about icons and the theology of icons. And for him, it was all about, you know, whether whether the commandments forbid this action. And I said, well, we can have that debate and we can talk about different issues in scripture. And I wrote an article on that, but Prior to that is the question of our differences about who God is and the theology of God. And so our practice is a reflection of the belief. And the belief, ironically, this is the key point for the Protestant, is that all of these things that we're talking about and that the Church Fathers hammered out of these seven councils that deal with Jesus and his person, they're using the Greek terms that come out of the New Testament. So if you're having a problem with icon, that's in Hebrews, right? He's the icon of the Father. If you're having a problem with the question of energies of God, Paul uses that terminology in the New Testament. He talks about the operations of the Spirit. And the word he uses there is the same word that we use. If you have a problem with person versus Fusis, those nature, those are Greek terms, and and I'm not just saying you have to know Greek. I'm saying that the irony is that for Protestants and guys that would go to Bible college and learn Greek, these are all the Greek terms in the New Testament that are used by the Church Fathers when they say what the revelation of Christ's person is, and that that provides our anthropology, which is a revealed anthropology about about the healing of man. Uh, one last question, and then we'll move on to the next section of the interview. Um, uh, uh, for the for the Protestants and the evangelicals who are you know listening to us talk and you know they they can't they can't quite get past uh, the whole concept of hanging out in church and doing whatever the Spirit leads you to do and all of a sudden we've gone into liturgy and incense and cathedrals and robes and cassocks and all that kind of stuff um, and uh, I'd like to explore this a little bit more in articles and podcasts and i'm not sure exactly where to turn but is uh so what do you say to your friends who who can't get past the uh the whole concept of you know somehow extemporaneous you know from the hip sort of uh expressions and all sorts of stuff is has sort of become in our culture i don't know somehow equivalent to divine encounter um how, how do you deal with that what kind of things do you say Uh, like, you mean like jazz music compared to classical? Uh, it's like you know, it's like it, it, to be really modern and really following God and the Holy Spirit, it has to be something that's sort of extemporaneous and not something that's scripted out. Uh, well, I would say that throughout the Bible, the majority of the time that we see the prophets or um, the schools of prophets or anything to do with the worship of God is always structured liturgy. Uh, even Abraham had a structured liturgy that he participated in with Melchizedek uh, in Genesis. So from the beginning of time, God's worship has not been disordered. And when you see the uh, liturgy being laid out for the this construction of the tabernacle and the temple, it's ordered. Uh, Jesus attended 
synagogue worship that was ordered. It was not uh, happenstance or chaotic or what we what people think is charismatic. Uh, it's always been that way, and the earliest church functioned that way. The church in Acts, you know, they had lights in the windows. In other words, they had liturgy. So they had an altar, according to Hebrews. So um, that is really, I think, just a, a cultural assumption based on probably the practice of people who have just gone to you know different non-denominational Protestant churches or evangelical churches where they've not thought about that aspect of, the, you know, we, we believe even we practice things that we see as having a lot of continuity with the Old Testament. And unfortunately, at times, you get even in orthodoxy the idea that, uh, you know, the Old Testament's this uh, evil, mean God, and now we're, we're the nice, loving Jesus uh, God, or so it's some sort of antinomian or Gnostic thing. That's not true. Most of the arguments of the Church Fathers, and even into the Middle Patristic and Medieval era, they will argue that there's much more continuity between uh, that period and our period. And so the worship doesn't, it, it alters in the sense that the church is now, the covenant is now made open to the Gentiles. Uh, but the form of that worship is laid out in things like the apocalypse, where John sees windows of visions into heaven, and he sees all this imagery, and he sees you know incense, and he sees uh, prayers, and he sees patterns of worship that are structured. And uh, that's when we believe that when the apostles went out and they established the different bishoprics and sees of the ancient church, uh, that they established liturgies, uh, basic patterns of worship. And yeah. that is part of the apostolic tradition. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good answer. Um, I, I, I uh, repurchased Frankie Schaefer's uh, Dancing Alone um, because he, he's got three or four pages where he addresses this a little bit. Not in enough detail as I'd like, but he talks about America having sort of uh, the transcendental movement and uh, and then some of the revivals and uh, th that this concept that we're talking about is not so much a Christian evangelical uh, uh, bent as it is an American bent because the same thing happens with you know losing weight or you know becoming a, a get you know licking your alcohol addiction or kind of stuff there's this abracadabra ab abracadabra magic moment sort of where everything changes um, that has become a big right. part of the American psyche. And so Christianity has gotten shoehorned into that whole mentality. Yes. This uh, comes out of the new light Presbyterian movement, which gave birth to a lot of revivalism. And then that kind of gave birth to the Azusa street revival and charismaticism in, in American Christianity and all those movements, instead of being focused on the Noah worship of God uh, shifted things to the bodily work is yep. that rationalistic Calvinism was lacking the place of the body and so what they did was they inverted things and they turned into it being all about the body and I would say that orthodoxy is a, a phenomenal combination of um, the the mind, the body and the spirit or the noose Alright, moving on to our next little section here, and this is just, uh, we won't spend too much time on this, but I just wanted to kind of kick some tires with you. I've got this new podcast that I've started. It's called GlobalStoryline.com, and uh, and so uh, I kind of cool, bought a cool domain name that I really like, but I also want to sort of begin to flesh out some of the concepts that I'm trying to do here. Uh, I have a sense that, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, when people stumble upon alternative media and they hear people, 
you know, uh, like yourself, you know, like the interviews Tim Kelly does, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, they hear it, you're talking mm-hmm. about a certain uh, current event, but there's layers and layers of of uh, things that have been going on in history that you know a person, if they just stumble across it, they sort of have to have other articles and other bits of information they're funneled to to begin to get an understanding of it. So, for example, um, uh, here's a here's a micro incident to a kind of a macro view of things. And I've, I hear you talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, here's here's five levels that I came up with uh, uh, earlier today to kind of get us into this conversation. But suppose that uh, a current event comes up where there's like a satanic killing you know, and, and, and the authorities seem to be covering it up, you know, and so that, you know, so you're, you, you got the alternative media, whoever's, you know, kind of dealing with it. Uh, well, it, a storyline that's kind of behind that, that you kind of need to know in order to be able to grasp this kind of stuff is that law enforcement has been involved with secret societies and a lot of sort of semi-satanic stuff for a long time. In fact, the Jack the Ripper, uh, uh, problem in in uh, London mm. in the late 1800s is likely you know associated with a lot of the similar kind of Masonic mm-hmm. cover up. And in order to and, and in order to grasp something like that, which is a pretty you know pretty tough thing to chew, is that law enforcement for a century has has been tied in with uh, satanic and secret society kind of crap. Um, that this has been actually going on since the Enlightenment. You know, I've heard you talk about you know Elizabeth having direct ties with John D, who was an occultic who was summoning mm-hmm. spirits. And so this is actually kind of a 500-year-long thing uh, in Western culture. But, you know, if that freaks you out, uh, you, you, you need to know that the longer story is that, is that really in, uh, throughout human history, kings have been involved in the occult, probably more of the rule uh, than the exception, mm-hmm. and that sure. things like the power of human sacrifice and how that can can uh, really empower you in your rule is is has always been a temptation and often practiced uh, uh, in 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 you know monarchies and governments uh, that aren't uh, following God. Of course, we we see that in Israel in the Old Testament. And then one more layer, one more layer to peel back. Um, and I've heard you talk about this too. But uh, to really get a sense of that, uh, you got the Book of Enoch, and you've got. Uh, Enoch sharing with us that really what happened uh, right around the fall is that these uh, watcher angels, these evil evil angels actually came to mankind and gave them all these secrets and all this stuff having to do with the occult and astrology and, and even things like the power of human sacrifice and all those kind of things that allow you to have the secrets to run the world. So I need to write five really good articles and do five really good po- podcasts and then point people to all the kind of work that you've done on these kind of things uh, to sort of give people a sense of the many later layers that may be behind a, you know, one current event that we're dealing with today that's that's kind of weird. Now, I don't know if that's a question or not. <laughs> that is a... Uh, uh, but uh, So I'm going to... I'm going to back that up uh, in, in the form of a question and ask you to uh, see if you can uh, put those five different storylines or five different layers I just laid out there into like a 
like a, a, a better headline. Um, how would you describe, and I've, I've heard you say one time that you felt like this was actually the, the, the story, the, the ultimate storyline of what's happened in humanity, at least with the bad guys. Uh, describe mm-hmm. to us what, what happened with Enoch, what he did with humanity, or I mean what the, the Watcher Angels did with humanity, and how today the elites are trying to do the same thing. Well, let me say first that uh, you're right about the uh, dangerous or the folly, I guess, the the folly of the idea of mass information and journalism. That's not to say that there's no such thing as a journalist, but that the idea of a journalist and uh, mass news, this is all... Uh, it all emerges from you know the post enlightenment period as well, and because we get out of that the idea of the informed citizen that that the that every citizen is going to be this you know educated uh, Thomas Jefferson founding father type guy who's going to seriously engage the issues and go down to his town hall and whatever, and that requires then you know keeping up abreast of the <laughs> the papers and what they all say and that that kind of. Pr- that doesn't exist. That's not, that is an enlightenment fiction and idealization of how the citizenry would operate. And that's not how humans operate. Uh, that's a universalized um, assumption that the enlightenment thinkers had. So the very idea of having uh, a, a mass information outlet that can cover all the bases isn't really feasible, but, I do think that it's possible to do be myself and cover the issues. You mentioned personalism earlier, cover the issues as the person that I am and from what I know and from what I've experienced and try to tie things together because we live in this period when we're under the illusion that all these things are not not connected, you know, be it different fields of biology and philosophy or be it things like events, you know, current events, uh, geopolitical events or history or so forth. So, uh, I don't worry too much about, you know, how come how come your website doesn't have, a, you know, a start here page, you know, like you, you got to take step one. Because well, it's not my job to explain everything to every single person. Um, I'm, I'm writing for an audience that's already going to be interested in, in what I do. And, you know, if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. So uh, to answer the rest of the question... Um, the, the book of Enoch is, is kind of in a quasi-canonical status for the East. It occupies a place of some degree of importance due to the fact that uh, it was cited by Jude a couple times. And now we have the issue of the Watchers. These fallen angels are also mentioned in the book of Daniel. So there's nothing uh, a-biblical, anti-biblical about this idea. It's hinted at in Genesis 6, I would say, pretty pretty clearly. Um, although some would debate what the you know the words mean there, but I think it's pretty clearly angels. Anyway, um, in orthodoxy, there's a little bit of a different idea of what constitutes scripture. You don't have this the all or nothing idea of the Protestants who believe in sola scriptura, because for example, sometimes you have Paul, Paul saying, "I give this not as uh, you know speaking by the Spirit, but as my own opinion." Well, if you were a Protestant and you believe that everything's inspired, then you have to say that Paul is inspired by the Spirit to say he wasn't inspired when he said it was his opinion. <laughs> that's pretty stupid. <laughs> and so that's an indicator that it's an indicator that even within Scripture we can have 
it's not so much that the the texts that have a lower status like the Deuterocan or or second Esdras or ecclesiastical writings that they're not true it's that they're not given the same reverence and preeminence as we do with the Gospels and the liturgy. So in the liturgy, for example, you'll see the Gospels kind of paraded around in the procession uh, and having a special place that even you know Paul's epistles don't have. You're going to have readings from the Bible and the liturgy uh, you know, throughout liturgical seasons. You'll, you'll go through the Bible in entirety. Uh, and the liturgy will refer to all sorts of things. But it, it, there's still, we can have a it's not all or nothing. We can have a precedence for certain things. The same way that we view the writings of the Church Fathers. Uh, you know, we can say they are, in a sense, inspired by God because they participate in the spirit that Jesus breathed upon the Church without saying that they have the same level or degree of inspiration or, or reverence uh, as you know, the, the, the Gospels do. And so that's a, uh, an idea of inspiration and, and authority for the text that's a little bit different in orthodoxy in comparison to evangelicalism or Protestantism. Um, so that also should be kept in mind. So it's, it's not that we're going to cite the book of Jude and say that we know for certain that every single detail of how in the latter aspects of Jude, you know, we're just getting these pretty, pretty wild descriptions. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying that, you know, it's kind of like the book of the apocalypse, you know, that orthodoxy uh, doesn't have this, a grandiose definitive view of what's supposed to happen like uh, evangelicals like Tim, Tim LaHaye and different characters like that try to try to do with the apocalypse now because they're very difficult uh, and they're not considered the most important thing for the the life of the believer like the gospels should be so when it comes to these fallen angels this is a little bit deeper difficult doctrine and i, I believe that uh, the new testament refers to this when it talks about the powers and principalities and jesus talks about satan falling from heaven like lightning and um, there's plenty of eastern theologians who've written on this topic and even even the liturgy we, we read about the dominions and the powers and this is talking about these angelic princes so in the book of daniel for example daniel uh, interacts with uh, Gabriel, who comes to him and says that he could not arrive on time because he was delayed by the Prince of Persia. And the Prince of Persia that he's talking about, that he's talking about the Watchers. Uh, this is mentioned again in the Book of Daniel explicitly. And the, the Book of Daniel is, is phenomenal. It's one of the most uh, amazing prophecies of the coming of the Messiah and the Church. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9. These are all really, really explicit statements about what the Kingdom of Christ will be, how it will come in the reign of the Romans, it will smash the previous empires and will grow into a tree and envelop the entire earth, which is what we've seen in the last 2,000 years, the times of the Gentiles that Jesus refers to in the Olivet Discourse. So uh, I would say that this idea of the Watchers is uh, pretty much pretty, pretty evident in aspects of the Old Testament, uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, Genesis, where we have this notion of uh, large giants or Rephaim or Anakim. These are biblical uh, terms and ideas for peoples. Um, for example, in Genesis, I believe it's uh, 15, when uh, Abraham uh, goes to war with the kings, they fight the Rephaim, and the Rephaim are these giants that are mentioned in Genesis 6. We also have a statement uh, in relationship to the uh, uh, to Goliath. Goliath was so large uh, because he descended from these people. Well, let me let me so, stop you first. Let me stop. No, you for a second. I, I like what you're where you're going, and I don't want to divert you from it. I know there's but, a but, flood. But, but, but there's a, a but, but there's a question. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, uh, how how does that DNA uh, get to the other side of the flood? Uh, uh, any question? Any answer there? The giants are roaming um, around before the flood. The flood destroys everybody except Noah and his family. So I'm not sure how. Here's the thing. Right. So when Noah and his family enter the ark and then come out, and we're told that this was the worldwide flood, what happens is they repopulate the earth, as we read in the Genesis account. And they build, of course, the Tower of Babel and. And uh, we see, we read about God confusing the nation because of them building the tower to heaven and seeking a name for themselves and so forth. Now, what that means is that all the aberrations that could have occurred uh, with the angelic entities of the Watchers uh, in Genesis six wiped out wiped out the living creatures as God's reasoning for the flood. That doesn't mean that the nations do not fall back into the uh, contamination and worship of demons. And this, I believe, could be, and I've seen some theologians argue this possibility, this could also be for the reason for God uh, demanding the wiping out of uh, the Canaanites. Uh, so we're told in Leviticus that this group of people had so contaminated themselves that, that they deserve to be wiped out. Very good, an- um, very good answer. I hadn't, uh, can you hear me? Uh, very good answer. I, I just took out my headset because it was act, acting weird. Uh, that's a very good answer. Um, I, uh, uh, I should have been smart enough to figure that out, but um, that makes sense. That they they kept doing the uh, the sex with demons thing after the uh, after the flood, and that that actually, uh, if I can, you you probably already made this association too. But uh, people have a hard time with the uh, Old Testament God who destroys whole nations and that sort of thing. But the basically the, the couple, three places where that happens in the Old Testament, uh, all three accounts, one is one is the Canaanites. You already mentioned how the Canaanites had these um, types of giants and that sort of thing uh, based on that kind of uh, hideous uh, occult activity. The other place we hear it about uh, is Sodom and Gomorrah because... The uh, uh, the the sodomites wanted to have sex with the angels there when they came to visit Lot, and of course the other place is right before the flood. So you could make an argument that the only time God goes so far as to destroy you know certain groups or populations of humanity is because in His mercy it's the only way He can keep them from being completely defiled and you know and polluted by by this demonic occult. Uh, interbreeding. Yeah, and and when in Leviticus, I believe it's 17 or 18, when God gives the reasoning and explanation for the eradication, and um, I believe the term was hormah in the Hebrew, where you were supposed to burn the entire place, uh, even after you had rid rid the place of its uh, inhabitants, you're supposed to burn it, because these the, the practices of these people was... Uh, child sacrifice, human sacrifice, and, and possibly even worse, what you mentioned before with the blending of uh, angel and human. Now that, again, I know that's, that may sound far-fetched. Uh, by the way, I'm not advocating what many of these uh, goofballs and alternative media do when they talk about 
Anakim and all this, a lot of these people are con men and shysters that are out there talking about this. I'm just looking at what, you know, the, the, the text themselves in the Old Testament say, and many of the church fathers, uh, you know, back this view up too. So, Well, and let me, let me move you forward to modern day history, because I've heard you say that you believe that many of the elites today who are very heavily into the occult are trying to reproduce this same kind of, I don't know if the words reproduce or continue on. Yes. Uh, now, many examples of kings being, as you mentioned, involved in occult practices. You know, this has existed from time immemorial, and you know, I, I, I can't say for certain that I know in any instance when you know, like, oh, they did the ritual that worked and it really brought you know X Y Z power down or what. I, I don't. I can't say that. But what I am saying is that nobody can deny that you know human sacrifice is even even mainline scholars will say that aside from Israelites and the Israelite practice uh, ancient Egyptians ancient Hindus you know all of these ancient Druids that was the normative practice amongst the nations and that makes sense because it jives exactly with what Enoch says that the watchers demanded human sacrifices it jives with the rest of the Old Testament and it even jives with the times that Israel fell into these practices which God condemns numerous times in the Old Testament so uh, there's no reason to believe that humans are operating any different today when it comes to uh, elite power circles because it represents uh, kind of the apex of the effacing of God uh, in in these actions, in the, the blending of species, be it bestiality, be it um, cannibalism um, or sacrificial murder. I mean, these these are believed to, and it doesn't it doesn't even matter whether even if you don't think these things are true. It, if a person believes that these things are efficacious and they act on them, then then it's it's still happening. Well, what gives you the sense of believing that this kind of thing may happen at the highest levels of the elites and not just something that happens in trailer well, trash, uh, you know, uh, lowest parts of humanity? Because of so many accounts of it, uh, because it's been practiced in so many societies for so many millennia, and we have... I, don't, I think the weight of evidence would be on the person who just denying it to say that it never happened. I mean, uh, it's for example, ancient a lot of ancient societies would sacrifice a human at the cornerstone of a new building. If they were going to build a, a giant building, I believe even the Egyptians at times. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to help the listener here. Just name a name a a, a, a story or two or a, a incident or two of modern day elites being involved in some of this kind of activity. Uh, well, there, there, William Kennedy has a book called Lucifer's Lodge where he details uh, a lot of practices of the infiltration of Satanism into the Catholic Church, and um, he's not an anti-Catholic. He's uh, probably more of a traditional Catholic, as far as I could tell. And that book uh, takes a lot of the cases of pedophilia in the recent decades of the Roman Catholic Church, and it puts them in context of what I'm talking about, and it deals with uh, instances where there actually were, you know, uh, satanic rituals and so forth. And uh, Malachi Martin has a book on this. Uh, you'll find exorcists that have books on this um, in Eastern and Western traditions. So there's no shortage of stories that are, you can find these stories. They might be 
sort of suppressed in, in the news at times. Uh, Dave McGowan's book, Program to Kill, deals with a lot of uh, occult and ritual murders in elite circles. We have the Dutro affair in Belgium, which uh, involved uh, a lot of the Belgian elite in these kinds of practices. So it does happen. Um, it's not always reported. We think of Savile in the UK and his interest in the occult and uh, necrophilia uh, and possibly other worse things as well. So, yeah, yeah no, that's, that, that, that was good. No, th- those, are, those are some good in- anecdotes. Now, isn't there a um, kind of a well-known thinker, French, like 19, died in 1950 or 60, Rene somebody who kind of talks about this at a more philosophical level? Rene Ganon? Yes, and and then I guess he had some sort of uh, apologist or, or follower who wrote about him a lot who just died maybe a, a year and a half ago, um, and uh, so I, I forget his name, but um, uh, but has yeah, Ganon talks about the um, occult practices of, of the elite, and he saw it as kind of a he was kind of one of these esotericists who ended up as a Sufi. And he saw our, our era as uh, the Kali Yuga, or the, the long period of dark, dark times when everything would be inverted and that you would have these practices kind of done openly. And, you know, it's not really, it's not too far afield from the declarations of uh, the uh, Luciferians at the Lucis Trust, supported by the UN, like Alice Bailey and uh, Madame Blavatsky, who said that we would be entering in this age the uh, externalization of the hierarchy when the, when the practices of the elite would be made and known publicly. So uh, that seems to me to be the case. Um, you know, this as so many of these stories keep coming out, and I'm sure that many, many more stories will come out. In fact, in the case of Savile and the UK stuff, there were quite a few journalists, uh, even in the mainstream, reporting on it, saying this is just the tip of the iceberg. So... You know, we've heard stories of cannibalism amongst um, royals and elites for a long time, and I think that they're probably true. Interesting. Well, we, we've kind of just kind of poked around on that a little bit, and I think I'm going to kind of let that just, uh, we'll, we'll stop there on that line of questioning. Uh, we spent a lot of time on your bio. There'll be other times we can uh, hit a lot of more, uh, a lot of other projects. We've we've uh, we've had a good little session here. Um, I'm just going to ask you a couple little uh Quick questions for fun. Um, uh, is your is all your stuff backed up in case something happens to you? I mean, what, what happens if tomorrow Jay's web Jay, Jay's website's down and we can't access your one thousand articles and five hundred pi- podcasts? I just want to make sure that you've you've put it on a hard drive and sent it to you know your crazy uncle or something. A lot of things are backed up. Um, not every single thing, but. Um Many, many of the articles are also mirrored on other sites, quite a few actually. Um, so, and I don't mind people doing that when they mirror things. Um, a lot of stuff's on 21st Century Wire, a lot of stuff's on Soul of the East. Um, certainly not everything, but yeah, I actually, I've, I've been planning on uh, you know, starting backup channels and using Vimeo and other, other outlets and so forth to. Uh, well, know, good. Not, to not lose this body of work. Yeah, yeah do your best do. on that because it'd be it'd be a shame to see that uh, go away. Um, well, and I, of course, a lot of these articles are are stashed as well, and on my uh, on other computers, other devices, and uh, you know, I, I'm not going to stop writing books anytime soon. So once this book's out, I'm going to write my next book, which 
I'd like to do something on philosophy and theology if, uh, you know, if I can find a, pub- a publisher. Um, and that will include, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that I've done and kind of reformatting it and, and rewriting it. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, uh, so let's just mention again um, that you have a book coming out soon called Esoteric Hollywood. I've already bought, pre-purchased my copy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what's your what's your uh, date now, they, they say? Uh, it's going to be a month or two because uh, I'm just now finishing the last bit of what are called sidebars, which is just these little inserts that kind of give a description of stuff that I'm talking about. So I've added, it took, took me a while, I had to do about 50 or 60 of those. And so that's another, you're getting another probably 30 or 40 pages worth of stuff with that. Um, so the book's already kind of grown to 400 pages and 400 plus footnotes. So cool. Um, so yeah, I've got just a couple more sidebars to do. Yeah, so go go ahead and order that. Uh, where do you go to Amazon to get that, or uh, to your website, or Amazon or uh, tryingday.com. Okay, gotcha. Uh, one more question. Um, uh, so we had an event here in Chattanooga uh, about five months ago, six months ago, that Jay spoke at. Uh, about twenty five of the top filmmakers in Chattanooga, really sharp crowd, and uh, <clears throat> so I was talking to one of the guys who's just a really sharp guy. He, he he makes a whole lot of money, and he's uh, he's a brilliant wordsmith, and he's kind of a nut, um, kind of a playboy. Um, but uh, he uh, he was really into it. He's like, man, it was fantastic. I, I uh, you know, but but he but his question was, I was like, you know, what was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to walk the aisle and you know you know sign up for something or something like that? And and so. Uh, uh, my question to you, and you know, I'm sure it's a question you get a lot. It's a question I like to ask a lot. But what what, what is the uh, what is the call and response for uh, being in this world that we live in and trying to expose some of the lies and get out there and, and fight the good fight uh, and talk about some of the things we're talking about tonight, you know, things that you do. What is the what's the call to action? Uh, making mammon. Making money. I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> Eating humans, don't you? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, if you, if you don't listen to this the right way, it could get a little weird. What is the call to action? Well, I guess that's different for different stations of life. Um, you know, I quit academia to experiment with this, so this is me experimenting on trying to see, uh, you know, what happens if I try to teach on my own, and it looks to be going pretty well so far. So. Um, uh, you know, it really just depends on what a spiritual advisor would say to a person in their their various stations in life, because it's going to be different for each person. But, um, or did you mean what's what's my motivation? Is that what you're asking? No, I'm sort of asking um, uh, what is the you know for the broader movement is it is it enlightenment? Is it uh, is it to cause people to finally conclude that the government is corrupt and evil and that you have to put your hope in God and not in princes and sons of men is the you know is it to pick up your gun and go start a revolution I'm sure it's not that but I mean that's that those are the options that are out there in terms of how do you fight you know this thing out there that's right uh, right I see what you're saying well the evil that exists out there is uh, spiritual in nature ultimately it's not the forces of government it's not uh ultimately just some sort of uh, collectivism or um, tyranny by corporations or any of the normal 
slogans that might be bantered about independent media, it's ultimately, I would say, theological. And um, you know, understanding what's true is directly related to the person of the Logos. The Logos is truth. It is uh, true rationality and reason. And it's a, a divine person. And so any movement towards truth is, in some small way at least, movement towards the Logos, because he is truth himself. So um, I see you know, speaking to people what's true as that kind of, I guess you could say my ministry, so to speak, although I wouldn't call myself a minister. I would just say that that's, that's what my, I guess my talents or gifts would be is in this region. So arena, um, so that's, that's the goal here is that uh, we got to have a right view of God, uh, form our worldview uh, appropriately before we can, really tackle these things and so what my site does is that it takes these hot button topics and issues and pop culture things and you know things that everybody's into and it says all right let's look at this let's think about it and what aspects of it are true what aspects of it are false what things are pointing us to evil what things are pointing us to god in this So basically, um, you're basically just taking a very broad view that uh, uh, when you move people towards the truth and, our, and we move ourselves towards the truth, we're moving ourselves towards the Logos, which is Christ. We're moving ourselves closer to God. It's a spiritual battle. That's uh, the most important part, if not, you know, is a key part, if not the most important part of that whole battle is knowing God and getting closer to Christ. So kind of a general, very, very large general kind of call to action. Well, but I mean, again, it really depends on what your talents and gifts are. If you're talking about individual action, um, there's no point in fight. You can't fight DARPA. They've got drones and uh, they'll send a, they can send a missile down your chimney. So that would, would be utterly ludicrous. Any kind of militia groups or any of those, uh, goofy groups uh it's really about altering people's minds and hearts that's that's the main thing uh, and you can't one of the problems of independent alternative media is the idea that you can just put out information out there as if that's enough um that's not enough it takes uh divine enlightenment i would say that god has to enlighten people to spiritual truths and that comes through you know being them being open and you conveying that message hopefully uh, in a sufficient way. So you're saying that moving people towards prayer in the church is is very important and actually key because just information isn't going to do it. I think so. Um, I don't have any delusions of you know being able to convince everybody of that, obviously. Um, that's not going to happen. But I, if, if people see the work that I do and they, they find it interesting, you know, hopefully the argumentation is sound enough to to lead people in that direction. So, no, those are all good answers, and I th- that's an an- that's a question that I like to ask a lot. I'm probably you talk about gifts and calling. That's probably something that's in, involved with you know me in terms of a passion. But um, huh. I, you know, it p- different people are going to respond differently and have a different way and reaction uh, on what to do. Uh, we well, live. In, go ahead. I was going to say there's not. A lot of there's not much out there that deals with all these topics and tries to make sense of them, and I think that theology does make sense of a lot of this at the highest level. 
uh, you, you were talking earlier about different levels of these things. And I would say, you know, there's certain certain books that, that are, are great starting points. Uh, there's a really, really good book that affected me that I would recommend that ties in everything that we've talked about. Maybe not, not so much uh, all, a lot of the geopolitics stuff, but the, the bigger picture would be a book, um, The Cosmic Liturgy. And this is uh, St. Maximus, The Confessor. It's a small book. It can be read you know, in an afternoon. I think it's 100, 120 pages. But uh, that, that Cosmic Liturgy book affected me. I read it about 10 years ago, and I think that that's always stuck with me as a really profound alteration of my you know, view of not just uh, here in the now and or good, bad, conspiracy, whatever, but rather the whole meaning of man and the cosmos uh, is what's so profound about that book. And it's not, um, it's not inaccessible. It's very accessible. I think it's a St. Vladimir Seminary Press book. Well, I look forward to getting that. And, you know, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you could step back and say, gosh, you guys just, you guys get so out there in the hootie tootie universe that it's just kind of silly. But, you know, we actually live in a world where nobody knows what's up or down or sideways or forward. They don't know if there is a God, there isn't a God, if there is a world, if there is a mind or not, uh, who's a male, who's a female. I mean, it, uh, it's a really, an, it's, a, it's a messed up world right now. So, you know, to back up and ask some really basic questions like, what are we doing here and why are we here and what's happening is, is pretty important. And once again, you know, academia has let us down um, in terms of, you know, helping us shape us in terms of basic reality. Yes. Um, yeah, Cosmic what? Liturgy of the Universe According to Maximus Confessor. Yeah, I'm going to read that. Um, uh, uh, I'm, let me make one last comment and I'll let you go. Um, the, uh, so oh, you're, oh, 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 excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me, I want to question. There, there's two different books. The Cosmic Liturgy one is, is good. The one I was thinking of is actually better, the one from St. Vlad's. It's called um, On the Cosmic Mystery of Jesus by St. Maximus. So I just wanted to be clear there. On the Cosmic Mystery of Jesus. Yeah, I'll put you the link here in the chat. Okay. You put it in the link in the chat. What's What are you talking about? Skype has a chat feature right here. Oh, okay. You see it? I don't see it yet, but I'm sure. There's a little, there's a little bubble at the top that should be yellow. And then if you click oh, on I that, see it. it's, it's below, but... Got it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of, you know, you're sort of, uh, you said you have an experiment of sort of doing academia on your own. Um, uh, those of you who don't know, Jay has, uh, he's gone through, I think, 10 sessions or something, several sessions on Plato's Republic, and he's going to do more on Plato in the future and on Aristotle. Uh -huh. He's also done several sessions about to finish up a long series uh, going through Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, right. uh, which is basically an overview of the last 120 years of Atlanticist uh, uh Takeover, takeover, takeover of the of the of the world. But um, yeah. I, I've uh, <clears throat> I bought Tragedy and Hope, uh, and and for me the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. I've read about fifty to hundred pages of Quigley, and and I you know fell over and, and couldn't make it. Um, and I've read about three or four uh, parts of three or four books of the Republic, 
Uh, so I, I, I'm able to listen to all your stuff and learn a lot, but I, I wish I was, uh, uh, and, and maybe I'll build my muscles eventually. I'll be able to actually read the text themselves. <laughs> I completely understand. It's uh, a laborious procedure. And I think St. Basil said that one time that, you know, reading is like one of the most laborious procedures. So, so yeah, I understand. Yeah, but I'm, I'm working on it. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Is there anything else you want to share before we uh, move on this time and uh, call it a night? Um, yeah, if, just that if you, if you like what you hear and you want to, you know, get deeper into any of these topics, uh, you can subscribe to Jay's Analysis and check out my book and uh, make use of the archives. There's, you know, there's hundreds of articles there uh, on various subjects, not just movie reviews. That's Movie reviews are only like one-ninth <laughs> or one-tenth of the uh, total uh, subject matter there. Um, but, yeah, so uh, that's it. That's all I can think of. Well, that's perfect. You know, the search engine is kind of hard to find. You have to scroll down a long way till you get to it. Um, but uh, that's a pretty important feature for you because you got zillions of things on every well, every subject also, imaginable. There's also topics like you can do the categories of you know, geopolitics, or right, geology, right, right. And at the top, there's topic bars as well. Yeah, yeah, done, done that many times. All right, awesome stuff. Uh, have a great night. Look forward to talking to you again. And uh, over and out. All right, thanks, Dan. You have a good night too. You too.